It comes to you as a no surprise, I am sure, when I say, when I make this observation. Isn't it true that we, we reserve our warmest regards, we reserve our kindest words, and we reserve our most sympathetic fellowship for people that we love? I mean, isn't that the reason why Trump supporters have no love for Biden supporters and Biden supporters happily return the favor because we, we reserve our best intentions, our kindest words, most loving friendship with people who are like us, people who share something with us, people who we decide are on our side. And so we draw our circles tightly around like-minded people. And if we decide that someone is an outsider for whatever reason, or if we decide worse, uh, if we decide that someone has done us wrong, or if we decide that the mere existence of someone is an offense to us, then we gladly exclude them from our thoughts and from our good intentions. That's just how it is, isn't it? And so do you see how striking it is the way that God is toward those who have declared a war against them? It is striking the way that God treats them. And that is the first thing we see in that God does not treat the people who have declared a war against him. He does not treat them as their sins deserve, but he treats them as his grace gives. Not as sin deserves, but as grace gives. And so in chapter 9, verse 1, Isaiah starts out by saying, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And of course, Isaiah is speaking of the nation of Israel. Both the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel, they have together rejected God. They have rejected God's teachings. They have rejected their loyalty and covenant with God. They have rejected His truth and embraced lies, idols. And so at this point in history, both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah are in dire straits. They are about to be overrun by foreign invaders, the Assyrians. Dark days are ahead of them. But we have to recognize, don't we, that everything that Israel is now experiencing is of her own doing. When King David served the Lord with his whole heart. The nation was secure, prosperous, and peaceful. When other kings, after David, likewise remained faithful to the Lord, the kingdom was secure and safe. And the fact that they are in these dire straits, about to be destroyed, we have to know that this is all her own doing. And so what is so striking, what is so amazing is that God's word to such people defies our logic and expectations because God speaks to Israel not as her sins deserve, but as his grace gives. And he says to them, there will be 
no gloom. You see, God is about to do something new. And he says, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, Isaiah contrasts two different time epochs. On the one hand, he speaks of the former time, and he speaks, on the other hand, of the latter time. And from the perspective of Isaiah, the former time that he is speaking of is actually his present time. Because it is the former time, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And you see, these are the first regions to fall under the violence and the chaos of the invading Assyrians. The land of Zebulun, the Naphtali, and the regions beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations, these are the areas that were first conquered by the Assyrians, and these are the areas from which darkness flowed and covered the entire nation. This is Isaiah's former time, and he calls it former time in order to contrast it with what will be in the future, and that's what he calls the latter time. And Isaiah looks at the latter time, and this latter time is based on God's promise in chapters 7 and 8 of the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. And because Isaiah has believed with all his heart, with certainty in God's promise to send Emmanuel, he knows that this future, this latter time, must come and it will come. And Isaiah sees that when the latter time comes upon them, when Emmanuel comes, then God will eradicate darkness from its very source. And just as the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee were the first to experience the violence and the destruction of Assyria, the very place where darkness began to flow out to cover all of Israel, that is the place where God is going to come and drive away darkness and eradicate the darkness from its very source and origin. And that's the remarkable thing, isn't it? The fact that God is saying this not to a people who are on his side, but God is saying this to a people who are decidedly against him. God is not saying to a loyal people, I will come and drive away your darkness. I will come and undo the destruction. I will come and bless you. And he is not saying this to a loyal people, but to a disloyal people. He's saying this not to a faithful people, but to a faithless people. And he says, there will be no gloom. I will come and I will drive away the darkness. And so do you see here that God does not treat his people as their sins deserve, but he treats them according to grace. And isn't that your hope and isn't that my hope? 
that God does not treat us as our sins deserve, but he treats us with kindness, grace that we do not deserve. So that is the first thing, that God treats us not as our sins deserve, but according to his grace. And because of that, this is the second thing we see, the night is over. The night is over. And Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, this is an image that evokes in our minds what God did in Genesis 1, isn't it? How God, into the darkness, He spoke and He created the light and He drove away darkness. And this is an intentional uh, point that Isaiah is making. God created the world. He drove away the darkness with light. He filled the empty void with this handiwork, and he brought order into chaos. And Israel solely needed that God to be on her side. Because, you see, Israel was a hopeless nation. She was a futureless nation. She was overcome with darkness, with chaos. And she desperately needed that God of creation, the God who has the power to drive away darkness with his command, the God who with this very word can fill the empty void with good things, the God who can overrule chaos with beauty. She desperately needed that God to be on her side, and he was. And so you remember from chapter 7 and 8 and even before how Isaiah repeatedly proclaimed a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. It is a message with two sides, isn't it? A remnant shall return, but only a remnant shall return, meaning only a very few people will survive God's judgment upon sin. But at the same time, Isaiah sees the future of the Messiah. He sees the latter time, and he says, you have multiplied the nation. God created the world out of nothing. And that God, he can and he will multiply a small remnant, a few people who survived judgment. He can multiply them into a multitude. And what Isaiah is saying is this, blessing, not judgment, will be God's last act toward Israel. Not destruction, but building up. Not tearing down, but increase. That is what God is going to do. Because, of course, you know that grace needs to be more than mere survival. And if you remember in chapter 7, at this time, uh, the kingdom of Judah is facing an impending invasion 
by first by Israel and Syria, and then by Assyria. And knowing that, we read in chapter 7, verse 2, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Or can I put it this way? This is a people who is in no mood to celebrate. If you were to do a survey and ask them how things are going, they would have all said terribly. But Isaiah says, in the latter time, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. In the latter time, Emmanuel will come. And the people that are shaking like leaf, people who are gloomy, people who are downcast, when the Emmanuel comes in the latter time, God will fill their hearts with joy. The earth will yield its rich fruit for her. Her foes will fall defeated before her. And God is going to turn their gloom into great joy. But how can a defeated nation, how can this fallen nation have such a hopeful, such a wonderful future? And to answer the question, Isaiah remembers the day of Midian. The day of Midian we read about in Judges chapter 6 and 7. That's the days when Israel did not yet have a king and they were oppressed by many oppressors. And in Judges chapter 6 and 7, Israel finds itself being oppressed by the Midians. And God raised up a judge to save his people and God raised up Gideon. And in order to fight this invading horde of the Midianite armies, God says to gather Israel and he keeps eliminating them until they are reduced down to 300 men against untold number of foreign invading forces. And you know, I have often heard people describe these 300 men. Well, God only needed committed 300 men, and God chose these 300 because they were the ancient day equivalent of our special forces. They were the men of valor, special skills at war. And when you hear things like that, you need to recognize that that is utterly missing the point. When God called Gideon, and God, he had Gideon eliminate all but 300 people, the point was that if and when deliverance comes to Israel, it, it's not because of Gideon's strength and it is not because of the skillfulness or the valor of Israel. But if and when victory comes, God will bring victory through a ridiculously outmatched and insufficient means in order to show them that salvation and victory belong to God and the salvation and victory are God's doing, not man's doing. And the reason Isaiah is recalling that is that he knows that is, that is what God is about to do yet again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. 
How can a child, how can a child save a nation? You know, this was, and it still continues to be, a laughable promise. It's ridiculous that a birth of a mere child will save a nation that has no future, that a birth of a mere child can reconcile God to sinners, that a birth of a mere child can bring hope where there is no hope, where there is darkness, a mere birth of a child will bring light. But exactly, that is exactly the point, isn't it? That when God brings salvation and victory to Israel, it will not be because Israel contributed strength and skill and resources. But God has appointed salvation for his people where there is no human hope. And Israel's darkness will give away to light, not because of her resources and doing, but because of God's gift to her. And that brings us to the third and the last point, which is God's saving gift. And here, Isaiah lists the qualifications of the coming Savior. He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, as you know, a child is born every few seconds in this world. What makes this child so special? What makes this child so special is that he's the one given by God. To us, a son is given. God gives the child with the unique calling and with the sufficient resources to save. And so we hear about it. Isaiah calls him, he is wonderful counselor. The Hebrew word that translated here as wonderful, it's a word that, that is used in the Old Testament to refer to God himself and his works. And it's the closest word in the Hebrew language to mean something like supernatural. And what Isaiah is saying is that this child, this child will save because he is a supernatural divine counselor. He's a counselor. He is one who has wisdom that far surpasses the wisdom of Ahaz. And you remember how Ahaz's best scheme ends up being his undoing. His best scheme proves disastrous. But this divine counselor, this wonderful counselor, has wisdom that far surpasses Ahaz. And even he has wisdom that far surpasses Solomon. Because you see, even Solomon at his, uh, at his best, even then he was a mere man. But Emmanuel, he is a supernatural counselor. He is the divine counselor with wisdom, wisdom that belongs to God himself. And that is why, that is why this child is able to lead and save with infallible righteousness. Isaiah also says that Emmanuel is mighty God. Well, that's very clear, isn't it? In fact, in chapter 10, verse 21, this exact phrase is used to describe the Lord himself, 
Who is this Emmanuel who will come in the latter time? This Emmanuel, this baby, this child, this son who is given, this is mighty God. And he will lead God's people well because he is none other than God who has come to be with his people. You see, God is not a stingy giver. When he gives a gift, he gives himself as a gift. And then Isaiah says that Emmanuel is everlasting father. Now, that's a little confusing, isn't it? To say in one breath, he is a son given to us, but he is at the same time an everlasting father. You know, Old Testament has these many hints and many indications that only become clear in light of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But already here, we are being told that this son who is given to us shares in some profound way the very being of the Father. He is the everlasting Father. And that communicates to us that this Son who is given to us, He has one of the things He communicates to us. He has the Father-like concern and love for His children. A father may discipline and he may correct his children, but a father never abandons his children. And that is who this Savior is. And, it, and Isaiah then says, Emmanuel is the Prince of Peace. Peace in the Hebrew language means more than an absence of conflict and warfare, because peace, shalom in Hebrew language, means to be whole. It means to have harmony. And when he calls Emmanuel Prince of Peace, Isaiah is telling us that he has perfect harmony with God himself and that his rule, his reign, will bring that perfect peace and make us whole. His government is not a government that, a government that creates chaos. His government is the rule, is the reign, it's the authority that makes us whole. It makes us complete. And unlike earthly kingdoms, and we had a good reminder this week, didn't we, in the inauguration of a new president. And unlike earthly kingdoms and political parties that are temporary, Isaiah says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Jesus' reign will transcend time and space. He cannot be voted out. He cannot be impeached. His kingdom endures and stands forever. And it governs to bring us healing and peace, to make us whole. And Isaiah finally adds, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, how is a defeated and hopeless nation going to be saved? It is because God himself is passionately committed. He is passionately committed to end the reign of sin and misery. 
and he is committed to drive away darkness, and he is committed to bring joy to his people, and he is committed to give his people a safe kingdom where there is no harm, where righteousness flourishes. And so deep and so immovable was his commitment and zeal that he sent Jesus, his son, even to die on the cross, that through his death, through his righteousness, we may be forgiven, we may be reconciled, that we may be made whole, that we one day might know joy that will never fade away. He did all this in Jesus. That is to say, Isaiah's latter time is upon us. You know, do you see this, how Isaiah could only hope for it from a distance, from his perspective, where he was in that historical moment. He was living in the former time of hoping for the Messiah to come. And even then, that hope was enough to enable him to walk by faith amidst the darkness and the ruin that surrounded him. If so, how much more, how much more must we walk by faith? Because you see, we are the people upon whom the latter time has come. We are the people who do not long for the coming of the Lord's Emmanuel, but we are the people who have welcomed, or rather have been welcomed by Emmanuel. And if so, how much more must we walk by faith? In some ways, our world is no different than Isaiah's world in that we also experience much darkness in our lives. We also have many things in our lives and around us that cause us to despair and we lose heart. But loved ones hear this, that your God, your Father, is passionately committed to bless you. Yes, there are endless things in this world and in our lives that sink our hearts. But one reality outweighs them all. One reality overcomes them all. And that one reality is Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us, through whom and in whom God is committed to drive away the darkness in us, in whom and for whom God is committed to bring us light, to bring us wholeness, and to bring us joy. Loved ones, I don't know what things are discouraging you today. I don't know what things are breaking your heart today. But if we live in this world, those things are inevitable. Would you walk by faith? 
Would you walk by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and know that Jesus, he will drive away the darkness. He will fill your heart with joy and he is committed to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we come before you and we acknowledge, Lord, that we live in a world full of pain, full of darkness, full of dangers, and we are anxious and we are fearful. Oh, help us to hope, help us to trust, and help us to rest. Not that we are strong enough to face the challenges before us, not that we are resourceful enough to meet uh, these trials, but because we know that you are, because we know that you are committed to bring us through darkness into the light, because we know that you are committed to fill our hearts with joy, because you are committed to save and to keep us. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. We pray for your encouragement. We pray for your strength. And we pray for the faith by which we may cling to the Lord Jesus. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.